You are listening to Humanity Unlocked, and I am your host, Kimberly Daya. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. And if you are a returning listener, welcome back, and thank you for joining us. In the studio with me today, I have Mia Vivoni. Mia is a professional consultant and life coach specializing in the area of trauma and a member of the Stop Stigma Sacramento Speakers Bureau. Stop Stigma is an organization funded by the Sacramento County Department of Behavioral Health, and its mission is to reduce stigma and discrimination around the topic of mental health. Together with Sacramento County Department of Health Services and Behavioral Health Services, a project entitled Mental Illness, It's Not Always What You Think, was initiated and promote to promote mental health and wellness. The objective with this project is to provide education, resources, and support in an effort to eliminate barriers that are encountered by many who are experiencing mental illness. As we wrap up, we will provide more information about Stop Stigma Sacramento, but please also make sure to check the show notes for some additional details. I contacted Stop Stigma Sacramento after doing a deep dive on their mission to see if we could bring on someone from their speakers bureau to talk to us about the topic of mental health. A member of their team introduced me to Mia and she is my guest today. With the history of trauma that dates all the way back to childhood, Mia was a victim of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse as a child and survived homelessness, rapes, and life-threatening domestic assaults as a teenager and young woman. Mia found the tools to carve a pathway to healing and reclaimed her own humanity after decades of compulsive self-harm, suicide attempts, and addiction. And for nearly two decades, she has helped other survivors reclaim theirs. I've asked Mia to join us to not only tell us parts of her story, but to help us understand the cycle of trauma and how it manifests, both in one's life and in the outside world. We'll dive deep into the stigma that is attached to mental health, as well as the resources available to those who may be suffering in silence. With that, I want to welcome Mia to the podcast. Mia, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm so excited to talk to you. So excited. I've been excited all week. Um, okay, so we're going to get started, and I want to give a little background on you. Um, and we're going to just dive right in, because we, we do have a lot to cover today. You grew up in the the projects of Southside, Minneapolis, and in the early 70s, around age five or so, your mother, who was a nurse, took you to see a psychiatrist after experiencing some defiance at home, receiving some behavioral reports from your school. Um, when kids act out aggressively, and we know that sometimes, or oftentimes, that can be a symptom of a much larger underlying issue. So I know we're diving right in, like we're really going for it without a lot of like buildup, but we do have so much to cover. So I'm taking you back to the earliest memory you introduced to me in our in our pre-interview. So my first question is, was this the case with you? Was there some underlying? Kimberly, thank you so much for inviting me today to be on your guest. I'm really excited to share my story in hopes of encouraging other people to come to terms and unlock their own humanity if they've experienced trauma, particularly childhood trauma. So yes, that was the case with me. I was very young and you know, disobedient. Some of this was in was within normal ranges. Some of it wasn't. Um, my mother was, you know, in school, a single parent, and then working third shift at a hospital. My brother and I were uh, typically left alone, and in that era, it wasn't considered too early. Not like it might be today. Correct. And so there were all kinds of things that I experienced. Sibling abuse was one of them. Um, sibling molestation, another one. Mm-hmm. And so these things weren't something that I could talk about 
at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I really uh, had all these defense mechanisms that we know about today uh, that occurred in order for me to even survive some of these early experiences, Dissoci- dissociation being one of them, and I know you want to touch on that right. later. I'd be yes. happy to do so. Uh, but what happened is my mother took me in to see a professional and they diagnosed me with what was called obstinance defiance disorder. And so basically in, in, in that uh, time, it was you know, a problem child. Mm-hmm. You know? Also something that was prevalent in the field of psychology was tough love. Mm. Yes. And so I heard quite often, you know, you're making a big deal out of things. Why don't you just act right? Why are you making this so hard for me? And things like that. And uh, really uh, having these expectations of uh, that were unrealistic for me as a young child to meet. Mm-hmm. And so I became very angry, very withdrawn, and um, uh, not able to communicate. And, and nor did I have anybody to turn to. You know, I didn't have friends. We moved quite a bit. I didn't have parents of friends or anything like that or aunts or uncles that I could talk to about this. Uh, I was very frightened. And the times that I did speak up mm-hmm. later on were just treacherous mm-hmm. for me. So, And your father was not? No. My parents got divorced when I was four years old, and I, I did not see my father for many years after that. Okay. Um, I do know my father was violent with my mother, and so being a survivor of domestic violence, uh, several cases myself, I do understand that maybe she needed to do that for her own safety. Yeah. Uh, but I, yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty isolated with those experiences. And she, and your mom was a nurse? Yes. Okay. And then you, um, I don't know how much you want to dive into this or... or I, it, but she did have some diagnosis of her own. She did. And I, I just want to reiterate, Kimberly, that, you know, I've done a lot of work over a, a long period of time. So thank you for being considerate. But nothing is, is okay. out of bounds okay. or off limits to you. I think that us being willing to have these hard conversations is some of the things that will provide a path to healing for others. So, uh, okay. so I welcome any question. And, you know, uh, women and men mm-hmm. are listening. I, I take care of both. And then also some LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. community so you know if you want to ask those things too that's fine yeah. um, my mother was diagnosed with depression in the 70s you know they came out with Prozac and mm-hmm. so there were so many people diagnosed with that and the medication worked so well that they called us the United States Prozac nation and there have been a lot of books written about just that how so many people were you know the the drug was dispensed to help i didn't know this when i was younger i didn't know until i was much older Mm -hmm. um, during um, my second marriage where my mother literally could not cry and she made a comment and i asked her why and she said it was her medication so already being very detached from her emotions from you know losing her mother at 11 and some things that she had experienced and also being a domestic violence survivor like I was like I am she had difficulty expressing and regulating her own emotions yeah. uh, she also so she was diagnosed back then depression probably borderline personality disorder BPD right um, today it's more of a bipolar hypomania nonetheless she has a component called maternal narcissism so narcissism is you know the lack of empathy um, especially in the case of a disorder but my mother has maternal narcissism which means she can be empathetic with just about everybody else except her children 
Wow. Okay. We talked a little bit about narcissism a little bit during our pre-interview. You may have touched on that, but that just hit me in an interesting way. Um, wow. <laughs> okay. Sorry. That Okay. Everybody but her children. So nobody, so her, so her peer group, let's just say, would not describe her this way? Oh, no. No. My mother makes Rice Krispies, and she's so wonderful with her patients at the hospital, and she's very um, modest and and demure, and she has a a giggle like a little girl, and, and people commented all the time on how lucky I was. But, you know, when I was um, 12 years old, well, just about 12 years old and about to get a haircut for, you know, before school started, and this was yet another new school, I misbehaved and my mother said, do you really think you even deserve a haircut? Mm. So it, it was the behavior was not separated from my identity as a human being or my inherent worth as a human being. Everything came back to how I was not good enough. I was not measuring up. I was uh, the reason for the problems in her life. And I, I know today another term uh, um, that is, is pretty well fitting is scapegoat. So oh, yeah. I was the reason for all the problems even when I wasn't the reason for all the problems. Yeah. Okay. Um, when she took you to the psychiatrist, what, what was the outcome of that? Was there a diagnosis or treatment, counseling? What did they say? No counseling. No counseling. No counseling at all. Uh, my mother and I went home. Uh, there was, you know, no medication prescribed or anything like that. Just, you know, a lot of frustration. I felt my mom further disconnect from me emotionally. Um, uh, you know, she had a living boyfriend at the time. And so there was a lot of pressure throughout my childhood. And even, even now we can get to that later, Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, behave a certain way to please boyfriend or husband. And so those, there wasn't, um, other than, you know, an IEP at school, which is where they have certain, like I had to go to a cubicle or, um, I had to take extra time on a time to multiplication, uh, test, those types of things. Mm -hmm. But there, there wasn't a lot at that time for somebody that was with that diagnosis. And what was really interesting, Kimberly, is nobody asked me what happened to me. They the psychiatrist asked, didn't ask you? They asked me what, they, they wanted to know what was wrong with me, mm-hmm. but they never asked what happened mm-hmm. to me. And so um, one of my uh, personal missions wor- working with the Stop Stigma Sacramento Speakers Bureau is I say just that wherever I go. No one asked me what happened to me. So these behaviors were all a part of abuse, abandonment, emotional neglect, physical neglect, living mm-hmm. in poverty, and not having a relationship with my father, being left alone with my brother who was, you know, beat me on a daily basis, tormented me on a daily basis, and la- later on he and his friends molested me. And so these things were never discovered. Um, my mother still doesn't know some of these things, but she I, doesn't. I have no fear that she will ever listen to this. And if she did, well, I mean, she would have to deal with those things on her own. Oh man, and and she had not created a safe environment for you to be able to come to her and tell her these things. Thank you for saying, saying that. Yeah. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. Um, all right. We, I want to talk to you about the concept of disassociation we did, just touched on. Um, mm-hmm. Up until about five years ago, I was unaware of the term disassociation, of the concept of the process and the reason for why it occurs. I don't know that it's uh, as commonly understood as it is commonly occurring. Um, can you tell us what it means to disassociate and why it is both common and, and necessary, um, specifically with trauma victims? For sure. Um, do uh, may I challenge you to put you on the spot? Yeah, for a minute. Your game. This yeah, is so yeah, yeah, great. I have such a pleasure doing this with you. So when I described my mother and her lack of empathy toward only her children, um, you disassociated. You had an emotional influx in mm-hmm. your body, mm-hmm. and your mind went somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And you made some connections and some correlations, which is amazing. But what disassociation feels like at first is like you lose awareness of time and space and reality. And so we literally check out, phase out. Some of this isn't you know, pathological by any means. It's a normal function of the mind. Mm -hmm. Anybody can do it. You know, the minute you start daydreaming in school, you're disassociating. You're disconnecting from current reality. But disassociation, as far as trauma is concerned, is when an event is happening, in particular, um, like a rape that I've experienced, my mind literally had to go somewhere else or I would not have survived psychologically and emotionally. And so detaching from the body or derealization is a term for it. Depersonalization is another term for it. And not not being in my body because my mind said my body is going through this uncomfortable experience, so I need to leave for a minute to feel safe. And so that's really a great layman's phrase for dissociation is my body is uncomfortable, something is uncomfortable, so my mind is going to disappear for a minute to find comfort. Do you recall? Um, in the moment, um, was that a conscious effort to do that, or does the body do it on its own? The body and mind do it on its own. So it it begins as a subconscious effort. Mm-hmm. It's literally a defense mechanism for mm-hmm. the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now that I know about this, um, I have been able to myself and help others become more aware of this. And and kind of like, you know, anything that it is, you shine the light on it. Once you start to notice that you're doing that, which you will now, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. We, all, we all, you know, heard the conversation. So once you're aware that, oh my gosh, I do that, it's less likely to sneak up on us. So in that case, it can be something that we can summon in a situation where, you know, like a PowerPoint presentation, mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and especially in the mental health field, it seems like they're, they're you know, always giving another PowerPoint and, you know, it, it may not be engaging, it might be, you know, redundant or, you know, material that we've heard a hundred times. So we might have, you know what, I'm going to go in my mind and I'm going to go uh, to the beach. I'm going to do some deep breathing. I'm going to look forward to my weekend. This is dissociation, but this is intentional. Oh, I, I get it now. I get it. I, I kind of do that. And this is really silly, but I do it um, at the dentist <laughs> because I hate, you know, you have, because if you're, I get it, what you mean. You don't want to be present for mm-hmm. this. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. Good okay. example. I mean, that's I've, a very small example, but one I think most people can relate with, yeah. you know, um, yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. And then if you th- also too, um, on this topic, young children, 
a lot of times what I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but for the listeners, um, you guys may or may not not know that um, this is what I mean by five years ago, I, I, I was told about this. Children who have undergone some serious trauma will often even like around five years old or, or you know, where maybe a lot of our memories would start, they won't remember it because they've dissociated at that time. And then it years later, it's like the memory comes back. Is that is that due to the disassociation that the trauma gets buried and like there's no memory of it for I have a friend who recently um, memories came rushing back of something horrific that happened to her horrific she didn't, had no idea how, how, what happens the mind just in order to survive buries yes. it. Yes, oh, it it does, and and in something like that, you know, you're you're on the right path there, where the mind dissociates, mm-hmm. and and then this incident is compartmentalized, but the experience is frozen in the body yeah. all the way to the cells. So as we get older and we become more conscious beings, mm-hmm. if you will, or we go through any type of self-help or psychiatry or the path of mental health, anything like that, and our awareness increases, mindfulness almost requires these things to bubble up to the surface. So whereas, you know, a six-year-old woman who comes to me who's never, ever spoke of her rape, all of a sudden she comes to me because her marriage is in shambles, they get divorced, her adult children can't stand her and won't talk to her, and she's miserable, and then we start to talk, and she says, hey, I think something happened. Mm. And all of this comes up like beach balls she's been holding underwater for decades. Yes. So these are true stories of uh-huh. events that, you know, with clients that I've had. And so th- what I don't do is go through down memory lane yeah. because re-traumatization is unnecessary. Making the body go into a surge of neurochemicals like cortisol and adrenaline is unnecessary to heal so but she on her own remembered these events and it sounded like that's what happened with your friend Mm -hmm. too many times it can be as i i think like i'm not really sure but i think i might have or i have reactions to scenes in movies yeah or i have emotional reactions to somebody else's story yeah but i don't really know for sure my experience personally and professionally working with other people is that it's enough to go oh, I think something happened. Mm-hmm. Because if there wasn't a trace of that, we, it would never occur to that to us that something has happened. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. how hidden trauma can be identified. But again, there's no proof necessary. No. It's just the awareness of something happened. I really don't know what it is. I really don't know what the details are, but something happened. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay, so getting back to your story around... Um, Around age 10, 11, you began engaging in both self-harm and drug and alcohol abuse. By seventh grade, you were taken into a juvenile detention facility, essentially jail, uh, for three and a half years, part of which was spent in solitary confinement. There was a math teacher inside the facility who worked with you and took notice of your academic performance and intellect. And when we spoke about this in the pre-interview, you described it as an environment that almost felt safe, which resulted in you actually thriving academically. With the knowledge and education you now have as someone who works with trauma survivors, can you take us back to this period and describe what was happening with you internally um, from a psychological standpoint as a young girl? Um, and also what the experience was like for you, you know, spending three and a half years in jail sure. at that age? 
Sure, be be happy to go there with you. Yes, thank you. So when I started burning myself with a curling iron and when I started pulling my own hair until the point where it broke off and until I started um, pressing a little bit too hard with the razor blade on my shins. And what I noticed was that I instantly felt a relief. And the relief was a release of shame. And so that is where the compulsion and maybe even the obsession comes in, at least for me and for probably others, where, oh my gosh, I hurt, but at the same time, it felt good. Right. So I had been bottling up so much frustration from not having anybody to talk to, not having a safe environment to live in, and my mother not seeing that something is going on here for whatever reason. Maybe she did and and chose to block it because it was too difficult for her. I kind of went down that path of healing too. But nonetheless, there I was alone. Mm -hmm. And so I learned by accidentally cutting my shin with the razor and accidentally burning my neck with a curling iron that this is something that I felt like a release. So then what happened was when my mother, you know, turned her back or gave me some toxic positivity statement like, you know, turn your other cheek, things like that, when I came to her to try to share what was going on with me at school or the bullies that, you know, I had, I had to run for my life to and from school, you know, these people beat me up regularly and I was getting beaten up at home and you know all these things um, were happening I would get so frustrated I would go in my room and it got to the point where I would keep my curling iron plugged in and I would sit on the floor and you know it's easy to hide but she's not paying attention anyway so there were plenty of times I walked around and whether she chose to turn a blind eye out of her own comfort or what I don't know but that that was happening um, the, the bullying got worse in school. Um, I moved a lot. Uh, they thought it was a good idea to take me to the country. So my stepdad, who my mother and stepdad are still married, moved to South Dakota, very small town. Now I'm a leather jacket wearing butterfly knife carrying, mm-hmm. you know, tough kid. Yeah. I had to become tough because I was so bullied. I was bullied at home. I was bullied at school, and and I had no outlet. I had nobody to listen to. And so I moved to the country, and I got picked on for wearing, like, the same pair of guest jeans every week, you know, every day, every week, and, you know, and my hair and the the beauty mark on my face and, you know, everything, mm-hmm. everything. And I became, I was already enraged from so much sexual trauma and physical trauma and emotional neglect and abandonment that, you know, I went to a, a homecoming. Mm-hmm. And, and some people taunted me, and I acted out, and it became violent. I became violent, and so I had to go away for a little bit. And that being in that environment, in solitaire at 12. And did your mom turn you in? Like, how, how did you end up there? The the um, it was in a public space. Okay, and I blacked out. Gotcha. Okay, I blacked out in a rage. Um, 
this was after I picked up drugs and alcohol, but mm-hmm. I, I wasn't aware of where to get that mm-hmm. in the new environment, the new city, the new school, mm-hmm. um, which is probably why they moved me, one of the reasons. Um, but this was purely in, induced by threat. I've, I was under threat. Right. And it was a group of people coming toward me to hurt me. Right. And some of them were boys. Mm-hmm. And I had already experienced some of that. And so I went into a protective blackout rage right. and hurt somebody. And so, um, no, she didn't turn me in. As a matter of fact, I was on the run for a couple of days. I slept on rooftops and, you know, and ended up in the group home and jail and um, solitaire. But I, I felt safe in solitaire. Yeah. I, f- I felt safer in the cell mm-hmm. than I did at home. And there's somebody out there that's going to listen to this that is going to get that. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I, I felt safer there than I did at home. I felt like this teacher, this math teacher, Mrs. Broomfield, who is now long deceased, but I felt like that was the first woman of only a handful in my life that have ever expressed empathy and encouragement and support to me. Wow. And you were how old? This was 10 and t- ten to 12. Okay. So um, I got out of there when I was just short of my 17th birthday. Wow. And I didn't go home. Yeah. I, where, I went where? to Job Corps where I was, I fell into the hands of predators again because I've not lived at home since that that period of time so right before my my around my 13th birthday oh yeah yeah that was gonna be my next question about what you know at how long like at what point did you leave home you never went back nope okay nope how did how you know I know we're not comparing you know I know your mom is you know I'm a mother so I immediately go to what do you mean you didn't go home like what your mom did didn't say come home your mom what what how why what happened with her so when I was released they gave me a choice they said you could go to this job corps in Montana Mm -hmm. you could go to this job corps in Utah which Mm -hmm. I ended up choosing or you could go home and I already knew after being out of that environment, out of not having any exposure to my mother, that if I went back there, that I would get sick. Okay. And and I, I'm saying it in terms now, but yeah. I, I couldn't have worded it like that. Right. I just knew that I it wasn't a good place for me. That makes sense. And so I went to this job corps, and I was going to, the whole time on the bus, now I'm wearing shackles and handcuffs, right, to Utah. And the whole time on the bus, I'm saying, I'm, I'm going to, Kimberly, I'm going to finish high school. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to get good grades. I'm going to do the CNA class. You know, I'm, I'm not going to drink. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to be good, and I'm going to make her proud of me, and then she's going to love me. Mm. And I lasted probably a few weeks, probably a few weeks. Yeah. And um, interesting that uh, uh, during that the beginning time, I was on my way from the dorm. Now, this is a lot of inner city kids, you know, mm-hmm. kids from Atlanta, mm-hmm. kids from Southside Chicago, 
which we all know the research on that. You know, pretty hard, yeah. tough kids, a lot of them, like myself, with some criminal history. Yeah. And so that was yet another environment where I, I did not feel safe. Uh, and so I, I yearned for something to soothe all of that. I couldn't sleep at night. And drinking was one of the things that I did to be able to sleep. And so I only stayed there for a couple months before I jumped the fence and went into the downtown of Ogden, Utah. And I found a bum with a bottle. And I gave him a couple bucks because he was going to need it when he woke up. And I started drinking. Mm-hmm. Wow. And you, at this point, were like not eight, not 18 yet or around 18? Oh, no. I, w- I was at this point... I was not even 17. Not even 17. It was a couple months after um, I was released and just got to Job Corps. And I had completed a little bit of my high school classes. I really enjoyed the CNA thing. We did the hand washing and the bed making and, you know, um, and but it just all fell apart. I had very little contact with my mom. You know, it's just kind of thrown out there. And her words were, you know, you make your bed, you lie in it. And that was with a lot of different things, including when, uh, you know, I was on the street in Ogden, Utah now, and I got raped and pregnant. And, you know, her, I called her, I got the courage to call her. And she said, well, you made your bed, you lie in it. And I did. I went full-term pregnancy without a single medical visit, without shelter, without food. I gave birth to a daughter who I gave up for adoption. I've oh since found my her. Goodness. Have you? I have. It wasn't a happy ending, but I did. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. But she knows I'm here and I'm yeah. I'm open to, you know, whatever she needs to heal, but yeah. she's in her own uh moment. Yeah. And so, you know, until she's able to reach out on a level where we can communicate, then I owe it to myself to have some boundaries. But she knows where to find me. I understand. I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um Okay. What is Job Corps? What is that? Job Corps is a place where, you know, it was, I don't know, 70s, 80s maybe, where they send people who might need alternative education uh, to learn a trade. They have auto mechanics. They have um, FF, what is it, Future Farmers of America. Okay. Things like that. So they, they run people in through education, like, you know, your GED or actual high school diploma. How do you... Uh, do they give you a place to stay? Like, how do you? Yep, they have oh, okay. really big dorms. And so these dorms looked like uh, warehouses. Okay. And, oh, wow. Okay. And then the warehouses were constructed into, like, cubicles. And then there were four girls to a cubicle. Okay. And then there would be, like, a house manager mm-hmm. or a resident manager, which would be an adult staff member of the Job Corps. Okay. And then they would delegate, you know, like there was a, a dorm manager, which was one of the students, and they got credit for doing that. And they had a big lunchroom and just a bunch of kids okay. running around. Yeah. So it sounds, in theory, it sounds like a great idea, but you just, your experience with some of the kids that it wasn't. Okay. Gotcha. Sure. Um Okay, so in the intro, when I was referencing the work that Stop Stigma is doing in the community, I touched on the on the quote-unquote barriers to mental health that the organization works to help eliminate for those who are suffering. From the time you turned 18 until the time you turned 30, let's just say, what was that period like for you? And what were some of those barriers that made it complicated for you to receive what you needed to heal after having gone through what you experienced from such a young age? 
Wonderful questions. So the the first thing I want to touch on is the stigma. Yeah. So the stigma is still the largest barrier to mental health help. Okay. It self stigma. You know the shame about having these things. Who do I talk to? But also we have a stigma still in our society towards people that have mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. And the help that, you know, we say, reach out. You know, if you're if you're thinking about doing something, you know, reach out. But it's real difficult for people to reach out when they're not feeling safe to do so. And usually one or two experiences that, that turn out to be bad is enough to keep them out there and suffering. Yes. So that is something that I touch on quite a bit with Stop Stigma Sacramento is is that right there is we need to create a more place of safety in the mm-hmm. mental health industry mm-hmm. and in the counseling field and in the psychiatry field for people to come forward. And we need to do a better job at being present and like not moving appointments. We talked about that. Yes, briefly. we did. Yes. That I, I had people that were, you know, just really, really needing psychiatry and they call and move their appointment. And that's that's kind of I'm not downing you know, or putting the industry down or the people that work in that. I'm just saying we probably need to tweak the system a little bit to make it more accessible. Yeah. And the other thing that you asked me was, you know, from 13 to 30, or I'm sorry, 18 to 30. So I was 17 on the streets for a couple years, you know, was raped, became pregnant. Um, and, And then I entered into my first relationship as a teenager, which was abusive, just horribly abusive. I didn't have anywhere to go. My, uh, you know, when I called my mother and said, Mom, you know, this stuff is going on, I'm a minor. Yeah. And she said, you make your bed, you lie in it. And so I'm thinking, well, I don't have anywhere to go. Mm -hmm. So I have to stay here. And the abuse was so grave that in public, you know, walking to the 7-Eleven so he could get a pack of cigarettes, he squeezed my hand so hard that it went numb because I wasn't following his instructions to look at the ground when I walked. So now we call that, the FBI really calls it, and so does mental health, calls it intimate partner terrorism, when somebody is literally held captive. Mm -hmm. So when he would go to work at Pizza Hut, he would leave a playing card in the door. Now, it wouldn't matter if I left or if the wind blew that card out. If the card wasn't there, then I would suffer consequences for that. Wow. And this was the age 18 where I survived my first suicide attempt. Okay. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Okay. So when I called my mom and the phone line froze, I withstood some beating and sodomy and rape from this individual that I was with. And while I was cleaning myself up, in the bathroom I um, and tending to the bruises on my face and my broken lip I decided that I was going to cut my wrists mm-hmm. and I did I did and I still have scars are of course not as visible yeah. as they were then um, but you know I ended up going to the hospital because the neighbor um, heard you know right um you know he came and what are you doing you know you're making a mess everywhere you know that kind of thing and so went to the hospital and survived but I had nowhere to go the social workers came into the hospital room and tried to talk to me I've been through rape kits 
a couple mm-hmm. times as a teenager, which is humiliating yeah. and re-traumatizing, especially if there are, you know, aren't people. And me, as a sexual assault victim advocate, you know, to go in and sit with a woman and let her know what she's going to expect, and this is not something that is her fault, you know, there weren't things like that available at the time. And so uh, I had felt like I had no choice but to go back or be homeless again. They, they didn't... Um... Did they know who did this? These things? To oh you? yes. And they didn't try to counsel or try to make any resources available. I mean, I know this was a long time ago. It's just so hard to believe that somebody would send a young girl back to circumstances that brought her there that were could have ended much worse. Let, yeah. Thank you for that. But let me clarify. I didn't. I had a choice, but I felt like I had no choice. Okay. So what they did was they, you know, helped me file for a protective order. Uh-huh. And even though this happened so long ago, Kimberly, yeah, I help women get protective orders all the time. They're impossible to enforce, yeah, uh, unless somebody touches them. You know, the person could show up and they they call the cops. They're with a hundred feet of me, and maybe it's because the system has been so inundated. Maybe, with yeah. DV, but there's something there that probably needs to change as well to protect women getting out of a domestic violence situation. Uh, but I, they said, well, you need to go home to your mother. And I said, okay, I'll get on the bus and I'll do that. But they didn't follow me, and mm-hmm. I wasn't going to go home. I would rather go back to this person than go to my house. Wow, that's saying something. Mm-hmm. Goodness. Okay. Um I want to talk about your first 12-step meeting because that seemed to be one of the first turning points for you, although I'm sure there, there were many. Um, first, I want to ask how old you were when you, when you went to your first meeting, but also what made you decide to go to the first meeting and what happened after? Thank you. So the, the question, the previous question was, you know, between 18 and 30, what did my life look like? Yeah. And what it, what it looked like was uh, sleeping anywhere that I could, forming relationships just out of pure economic necessity. Right. Um, because I needed somewhere to live. And, um, you know, I, I had another child, um, a boy, mm-hmm. who, you know, I, I drug around with me and tried to parent. I had no idea what I was doing. I was in a foster home while I was pregnant with him. I was still underage. Oh the state of Colorado filed a charge against my mother for abandonment and neglect. Um, and she had to show up in Colorado for a hearing, and she didn't. Okay. And then years later, she had that on her record as a nurse, mm-hmm. and guess who she blamed? Oh, I'm sure. So, you know, I heard about that. I was a, I was a freshman in college when that happened, um, and she was quite furious, and I just couldn't wrap my head around, well, hold on, so I'm a minor, and I'm a mother now of my two sons, who are now 28 and 30, and she's blaming me for, you know, this charge that yeah. she has on her record. So I, I drank a lot. I... Um, I worked in bars, I waited tables, um, and the relationship thing, you know, going on until I met the father of my two boys, who was alcoholic and abusive. Okay. And and then this was in your twenties. This was in my twenties. Okay. Mm-hmm. I met him when I was oh, twenty one, mm-hmm. and he was twenty six years old, and and it was bad, real mm-hmm. fast. And uh, of course, I I magnetized these people, you know, yeah. because this is this I I had no idea of my own worth. 
And yeah. so this kept coming into my experience, you know. And I'm not saying that I'm blaming myself as a victim. There's no reason ever that yeah. is valid for abuse, ever, ever. But I just think that if somebody would have communicated that I was worth more than that, that I didn't deserve to be treated that way, I probably would not have been receptive mm -hmm. to that type of relationship. Yeah. And so my kids were born. I was 22 and 24 years old. And I was with their dad, and he hurt me badly, one day so badly that I have metal in my neck now because of it. It was a near-fatal incident, broke my neck. And um, years later, I, I was around almost 40, I had surgery. It wasn't in the moment when the cops came. Um, I don't know how graphic you want me to get, but... How, whatever. Okay. When the cops came... And this is sometimes a failure on behalf of law enforcement. Uh, we were in a hotel room, and the he showed up drunk. And I knew if I let him in, it was only 8 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. I knew if I let him in, what would happen? And so I wouldn't answer the door, and he continued to get infuriated. And so I grabbed the phone in the motel room. He was, you know, had to go somewhere for work and took us with him. He was uh, a roofing subcontractor. Okay. And so I grabbed the phone and I called 911. And it took them so long to get there that he had done so many things to me while my both my children were screaming. I couldn't get to them. They were both in pampers. My youngest was four years old. And... Um, when they came in the door, I was naked and bloody, and they treated me with such coldness and contempt. And they took him into custody, and then later on, we showed up in court. I went to a woman's shelter with my two sons. We showed up in court, and the judge disclosed my secret location. Oh, no. Yeah. And I called her out on it. And my advocate kind of got a chuckle out of that. But, yeah, she disclosed. She said, and she's staying at, you know, such and such women's shelter. And I went, well, thanks, because he's sitting right there, and now he knows. Wow. And there was no protection in the courtroom either, which today when I go to advocate yeah. with people, you know, we, we go off into one of those side rooms. Mm -hmm. We stay completely away from the perpetrator. I stand in front of her, you know, or behind her. I tell her, turn your back, don't make eye contact, don't even look in that direction. Yeah. Uh, and all of this is because, you know, we have physical reactions when we're in the vicinity of somebody who's assaulted us. 100%. Yes, I could totally see that. And so this is, this is one of the wonderful things mm -hmm. that have come out of all of these experiences I have, over 50. Yeah traumatic experiences i stopped at 50 yes when i was doing onboarding for a, a mental health company that i worked for and right and i made this list and i want i think 50 is a good number to stop <laughs> i read the list but you did yes. on my website yeah. um but but all of these things are used this knowledge of i remember how i felt in that situation of not being protected by law enforcement like or the judicial system there's no safe space to turn Right. There's no, yeah, because you have, yeah, yeah. Right. I have chills. Mm. Um, I want to cry. I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. It's, uh, 
it, it's important. And for, you're a mom. I'm a mommy. You're mom, and you're young. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to protect your kids, and you can't. And you, you, you're not even protected. I just can't even imagine. I just can't. Mm-hmm. Just can't. And it's important that your listeners know that your empathy is part of your humanity. And as we share our stories, people, you know, many of us have been touched by trauma. Mm -hmm. It's people like you that give us the platform to not only talk about the experience, but also I've never completed a suicide. I've had three attempts, but I'm, I'm still here. Yep. My children are thriving. Neither one of my children are alcoholic or drug addicted. Mm-hmm. You know, one's a contractor. The other works for UPS. They're very happy people. And it, it my recovery, um, when I went to my first meeting, mm-hmm. I was 32 mm-hmm. years old. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because I felt like I had a problem. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. Many people do that. It wasn't court mandated. Okay. It wasn't. I, I was uh, modeling with a, a girlfriend of mine who was 12 years my junior, and she got really tired of, like, being my babysitter, holding my hair when I threw up, coming to get me from work when I was too drunk to drive. And, you know, we both drank, and we both did drugs. So yeah. I couldn't imagine why she was bringing this to my attention. <laughs> you know, but she did. She said, there's a place down the street, and I think you should go there. And and honestly, in my head, I, I had no intention of getting any help. My mother and stepdad physically took me to an Alateen meeting when I was 13 years old, not the right way, I'm sorry, about 12 years old, not the right way to introduce somebody to that, right? right? And so I didn't want any part of it. But I went for her, and, and since that day, July 23rd, 2003, I have not had anything, a substance that that I have relied on Mm -hmm. um, to soothe my trauma. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that I look at that. There's science that backs that up. Mm -hmm. Did something happen in that 12-step? I mean, was there like a light bulb? that? Well, what happened? What what made you make that decision? What led led to that? So the first thing, you know, I was pretty out of my mind and uncomfortable in -hmm. that meeting. Um, I have a history of religious abuse Mm -hmm. as well, you know, from my stepfather who was pretty Catholic and, and my mom, um, you know, uh, and my uncle who Mm -hmm. was a deacon and a chef at the church and being ostracized and ridiculed and and threatened and Mm -hmm. that type of thing. Uh, so I had some spiritual blocks. Um, today that's not the case. I'm pretty broad with my belief about that. I don't believe that whatever this is that created me uh, is keeping a score sheet like my mom used to. Yeah. Um, Because if I believed that way, I would probably still be getting loaded. Right. Uh, But I went into this room, and honestly, it was the levity. I mean, these people were describing the current life I was living Mm -hmm. and that they had taken part in this, but they were happy. And it was a gentleman named Paul, and he was an old biker. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how he had been sober for a few years, and that morning he went out and had coffee on his patio, and he listened to the birds sing. And as I heard him in that meeting, I said, I can't remember the last time I heard birds. Mm -hmm. I can't remember... The last time I experienced deep, authentic joy or laughter. I just, I can't remember. And so that night I went back to work. I bartended and I didn't drink. I didn't do any drugs. And I went home and I got some sleep and I woke up the next day clear-minded. 
And I don't think the epiphany happened then, but this was a noon meeting that I went to. And so I went back to that meeting again. Mm -hmm. And then I went back again and again. And then I went three times a day. And then I quit a year later, I quit my job at the bar and I sold yellow page advertising. That's how, that's how long ago this wow. was. <laughs> and, and then I had my first noble you know, career, but I made $20,000 a year mm -hmm. and I had two children and no child support. And, and I needed a backpack and I needed food and they wanted to play football, you know, Yeah. and, uh, and no support. Yeah. But I kept going and something happened, um, with my sponsor mm -hmm. who came to me at my first meeting and, you know, she tried to hug me and I reached back to hit her just because I was so used to somebody with their hands out like this activated that trauma so I perceived a, th a threat where there was none mm -hmm. and that's one of the ways that trauma shows up in our current life yeah. she became the woman who saved my life and she also became the mother that I never had she celebrated my achievements with me when I got A's in college she did cartwheels for me she answered parenting questions for me she was never afraid to tell me what I needed to hear and she never reflected back to me that the relationship was transactional, meaning I had to give her something in order for her to love me. Yeah. It was my first experience of unconditional love. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. So it's almost like when you, when you started going in the beginning, something resonated with you, but it sounds like you weren't totally even conscious of what it was, but something internally, maybe on a subconscious level, knew that this it just kept bringing you back it's that's and I, I feel like that's a higher power at work yeah Agreed. when we talk about spirituality I feel like it's like divine intervention kept bringing you back and yeah it's amazing um okay we talked a little bit about what you refer to as an impetus that oftentimes there there needs to be an impetus causing someone to seek out a healing path do you remember I mean was this the was your friend the impetus in this or like what was your impetus so she was the angel yeah and the messenger for sure but the impetus or moments before that um, were consequences in rapid succession so okay I had I had problems with the boss I mean I worked in a bar and the owner of the bar came to me and said hey you can no longer drink here and I went it's a bar <laughs> you know, it, so it was something like that, somebody reflecting back to me that you have an issue with this. Yeah. Um, I continued to get in fights. Even when I was not intoxicated, I had so much rage in me that I needed a release. I had no idea how to self-regulate. Um, I, I picked up another assault charge. I got sent to anger management, and I just knew that it would never be possible for me to get a handle on my temper, mm -hmm. which is not the case today. I mean, I have blown it miserably several times in my life and in my recovery, but it's nothing like the blackout that we talked about earlier that resulted in three and a half and four years of my life, yeah. um, you know, in an institution. So this, this thing that I'm going through inside, which is from the trauma, the shame, the rage, the being disconnected from my emotions, um, that, that came alive in my recovery program. 
through the spirituality mm-hmm. and through seeing the example of others where where I heard my story over and over and over again, not identically, yeah. you know, but but pretty close to where I, I was really attracted to what they were doing here and, and whether or not that they were drinking. My children grew up in in those you know in that environment and that that was pretty interesting um and they i see the effects of that still today Mm -hmm. yeah that's amazing um i you know when you talked about the levity that resonated with me i've I've, you know been to my fair share of 12-step meetings and my dad's recovering um has been my whole life and there is there's the oh i thought i silenced it sorry listeners um there is a um a level of levity at those meetings. I mean, like people don't take themselves too seriously and it is a little bit, it's, it's, there's, I think that's comforting for someone who is going through a tremendous amount of pain. So I just want to comment on that for anybody who is thinking about, um, joining or, or trying out something like this. Um, okay. So I'm switching gears a bit. What, um, I want to get your, your advice on a few things. So when someone is deep in the trenches of pain, and self-destruction as a result of the trauma they've experienced and and their capacity to even comprehend or get their head around the idea that there could be a way out. When that capacity is compromised and their belief that it's even possible is fractured because they've been battling their circumstances or or even their own mind for so long. Let's say that person is listening. My question, it will sound very mechanistic, mechanistic, but um, stay with me guys. If this person is listening and they look around themselves and don't see an available move that they could make in a positive direction because they're surrounded by toxicity in whatever form that is taking, what is one tiny first step or one piece of advice that could help them to strengthen their capacity, if even just a little, um, to believe that healing is in fact possible? Very, very good question. A complicated answer. Because yeah. you're you're right. People that are traumatized severely, and again, we're talking about something different. You know, um, uh, being a nine eleven survivor, mm-hmm. being a combat veteran. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's trauma too. Mm-hmm. You know, and and those are equally as important and devastating experiences to carry in the human mind and body. But what we're talking about here today is things that happen when we're younger in mm-hmm. our family of origin with people that are appointed to protect and love and accept and nurture us. And when that doesn't happen, those relationships are not safe. It sets us in motion to, you know, receive more of that and and not be self-aware. So I think one of the things um, for somebody who's going through that, they, they may not even be able to see it. That it's yeah. the 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 trauma, you know, keeps showing up. Um, their boss behaves like their mother or their father. The you know they ended up marrying their mom or something. You know, mm-hmm. those are real things. Mm-hmm. The way trauma shows up because, you know, we've all heard of the trauma bond and the trauma yeah. bond. You know, according to social media, would be two people get together and they fight a lot and they're working their trauma out. And that's not accurate. A trauma bond is I'm with you. And you have these characteristics in our relationship that are similar to mom or similar to dad or even similar to my brother. Mm -hmm. And so if I can just get you to understand how you're hurting me and and you treat me differently, I'm going to be okay inside. 
that's a trauma bond and it's a big lie it's yeah. a big lie so the first thing is to recognize you know by you can look on the internet or listen to more of these podcasts on uh, you know humanity unlocked and learn more about trauma and what that is and what that does to the mind on my website there's a section on the front page called trauma basics that puts it in language of what it is and what it does to the mind and the body and if you see yourself in any of those things I know it's hard, Mm -hmm. but reach out for help. It doesn't have to be psychiatry. It doesn't have to be mental health or therapy or anything like that. But really what might be a first step is reach out to somebody who has lived experience. Mm -hmm. Reach out to a friend of yours that you know has experienced something that you might feel that you've been through but you don't remember. Mm -hmm. Or somebody who um, has a a show or a channel that Mm -hmm. talks about the relationship with a parent that you might have had when you were younger. But all these years you've been telling yourself that maybe it's normal. Maybe they did the best they could with what they had and denying the own effects of yourself yeah that 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 relationship had on you reach out to those people who will be able to speak your language I think that really is the first step because we say if you're suffering reach out yeah if you're suffering reach out reaching out is so difficult but if you know somebody has been through Mm -hmm. what you've been through Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier it is yeah that would be it's my first suggestion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then in whoever you're reaching out to, whether it's you know an organization like like Stop Stigma or um, or someone else, maybe they will have the resources to point you towards. Um, you know, if you don't know any what direction to go in, I think maybe ask someone who does. You know, and organizations like Stop Stigma are in place for for a reason. I mean, I think I'm. Um, that would that would be my advice um, yeah may I yeah oh yeah may I add um, also today in the mental health profession there are so many people that have not only the education and the professional experience but they're coming from a place of lived experience mm-hmm. that's so true yeah and so if 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 they talk to a friend or you know a podcast host or anybody else or if they go to one of these events like mental health America we have every May and there's all these organizations there if they come forward courageously they may get plugged in with somebody, an agency, an organization that has professionals that actually also have lived experience. Those people are golden. Mm -hmm. They are golden in our community because they can come from both sides of this. And and somebody, I'm I'm not putting down anybody that just has the education or the clinical experience, but there is something to be said in the therapeutic space where you can look into the eyes of another human being and say, you know what, that happened to me too. Yeah. And and I get what that's like inside your body and inside your mind. And so those those avenues can open up to somebody, but it is coming forward. And, and that is just so hard to do, especially if they're in the thoroughs of addiction or any other yes. obsession. Yes. It's like being in a, in, in a prison. Mm-hmm. Like when... Um, you know, when you, what you were just talking about, I'm um, having the lived experience, it resonated with me because I always think in terms of, I always think in terms of metaphors and I always think in terms of like, what, what would this be like if it, for me in my life? Like, how can I explain this better? So like with my husband, I always say it would be like if fill in the blank, I'm always doing that. Um, 
so when you were talking, it was, it made me think about, I have, I have a physical autoimmune condition and it's been rough. Uh, 16 years and a, a period of time was in a wheelchair. Like it's been really rough. And I, you know, what, what I would have loved is if one of my doctors had just one of them had gone through something similar because it's one thing to be textbook educated on these conditions and it's and, and to be trying to advise and diagnose and test or whatever. Um, very few are, you know, obviously. Um, so I do think there, I mean, the connection, I think I've worked with like a health coach at one point who had, um, and what a difference when in the communication, you, you feel like you can be vulnerable because that person knows they've walked in those shoes. So, um, very, um, valuable, I would say. Okay. So we talked a little bit about the importance of feeling one's feelings and how a person's decision, whether or not they feel can be the difference of whether or not they can recover from trauma. Um, we talked about this sort of when we were talking about something else as a result of another conversation we're having. Um, can you explain why this is such an important fact? I never thought about this because what I was asking you was in the pre-interview was what is the difference between your mom who never fully recovered and has, has these other issues going on and you who has gone through a recovery, but you both experienced trauma. What's it? Why are you able to, and, and, and she's not able to recover. And you said it is the difference between someone who's willing to feel their feelings in order to recover. Can you expand on that a little bit and why, tell us why it's so important? Certainly. And as, as I said in our pre-interview, I just thought this was such a great question. That's all for part one of this episode. The story continues in part two and is available now.